Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. And tonight we'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 26. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He said, seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings the princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. <clears throat> to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them by all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask for your help tonight as we come to consider this powerful passage of scripture. We ask that you would Help me in the preaching and help us all, including myself, in the hearing. Would your spirit illuminate our understanding? Loosen my tongue to declare your excellencies. Would our hearts feel the weight of what the prophet says here? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We began a mini-series in Isaiah 40 a few weeks ago, looking first at verses 1 to 5, 
and then verses 6 to 8, and then 9 to 11, all of which are now online, by the way, at crbcbarbados.com. And tonight we're looking at a larger section comprising verses 12 to 26, which I just read for you. And the passage before us tonight presents Israel's God as incomparable. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness can be compared with him? This is a rhetorical question, and the presumed answer is nobody, nothing. And look now at verse 25. Basically, a restatement of the same rhetorical question. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Again, the presumed answer is nobody, nothing. The incomparability of God is the dominant theme of tonight's passage. Let's jump right in, beginning with verse 12, and examine the absurdity of comparing the nations with Israel's God. Look at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? This verse tells us that God has measured the waters in the hollow of his head. That's basically where your palm is if you cup your hand like a scoop. All the waters, the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, the Antarctic, the Arctic, the Caribbean Sea, etc. All the waters could fit so to speak, in the hollow of God's hand. Then it says that God marked off the heavens with a span. This is an ancient measurement, which varies somewhat from person to person, of course, but it's the distance between the tip of your thumb and your baby finger when you hold them out from each other as far as they would go. This is a span. Since the heavens mean everything that's not the earth, this refers to the 93 billion light years, which is the known diameter of the universe that we inhabit. So all of the 100 billion galaxies or more known to man spanning 93 billion light years plus can fit between God's thumb and God's baby finger. Verse 12 goes on to say that God has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And this Hebrew word translated here as measure is apparently roughly equivalent to our phrase, a measuring cup. The image here is that God takes all of the landmass of the deserts and the grasslands and the forests and whatever other terrain on earth and puts it all in one of his measuring cups, like we might do with a little bit of flour or sugar when we are baking. And then last but not least, verse 12 tells us that God takes the mountains and the hills and puts them on a scale. 
Like we might use a kitchen scale to find out how many ounces the chicken breast is that we are cooking or whatever else we might be weighing. God takes the Rockies, the Andes, the Alps, the Himalayas, the Eastern Rift Mountains, and whatever other mountain range there is on planet Earth, and he plots them there on the scale like we would do with a little piece of food. What are we to make of this? This passage is not telling us that God literally has huge hands. This passage is not telling us that God is the possessor of gigantic measuring cups. This passage is not telling us that God has a colossal scale in his possession. This is an example of what theologians call anthropomorphic language, which means that it is attributing human attributes to God so that we can understand something of what God is like, which would otherwise be unintelligible to us. Without this sort of anthropomorphic language, what could Isaiah say that would give us something of the truth? God is big. God is great. God is powerful. All of these are true statements, yes. But doesn't this capture the same truths a little more poignantly? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? As it says at the end of Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9, Israel, behold your God. Verse 13 goes on to say, who has measured or directed the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Some translations say measured, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And some translations say directed, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? But the correct translation is something of a moot point because the point being made would be true either way. If on one end the question is, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, then the first part of that phrase would correspond with what has already been said. In contrast to the hills and the mountains and the dust of the earth and the heavens, which can all be measured, although they are vast, they are finite, and they can be measured in contrast to those things, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? No one can measure him, for he is immeasurable. First, he is not a corporeal being, which means that he does not have a body or physicality. And second, the Lord is infinite. Even if you had some kind of apparatus for measuring spirits, you could never find an end to the spirit of the Lord. Because unlike the waters and the heavens and the dust of the earth and the mountains and the hills, which could all be theoretically measured because there are limits, however vast, God cannot be measured because he is infinite. This is why the anthropomorphic language is used. As an infinite being, it is not 
possible to literally speak of God's comparative size over and against the 93 billion light years of our universe or the comparative size of God next to the Rocky Mountains. So God must speak figuratively in revealing himself to us, in speaking of his immensity and his infinity. God uses this anthropomorphic language to contrast the limits of these things, which are for all intents and purposes immeasurable to us, to show us that if he can measure them, he must be that much more superior to these things. So if the question is, who has measured the spirit of the Lord, it goes with what's before. And in contrast to the hills and the dust of the earth and the heavens and whatever, which can be measured, the spirit of the Lord cannot be. No one has measured the spirit of the Lord because he cannot be measured. If, on the other hand, the question is, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Then it corresponds to what is coming. Because Isaiah goes on to talk about how God knows all things and no one advises him. And so the answer would still be no one. No one has directed the spirit of the Lord or offered him counsel, as verse 13 says. And continuing into verse 14, God consulted no one. And no one made God understand. No one taught God anything. Not the path of justice, nor knowledge, nor understanding. Do you want to know a few things that God cannot do? Here they are. God cannot learn. God cannot have a new thought. God cannot increase his understanding. If God could learn, he would be less than omniscient, all-knowing. If God could have a new thought, then hypothetically, one day when you're praying, you could say something to God, and God could say, I have never thought of that before. If God could increase his understanding, then someone could show him a better way to do whatever it is that he was doing. Again, hypothetically then, when you pray, you could say, hey God, maybe it would be better if you did it such and such a different way rather than the way you are doing it and God could increase in his understanding. But these are blasphemous thoughts. God cannot learn. God cannot have a new thought. God cannot increase in his understanding because he is omniscient. Therefore, no one advises God. No one teaches God. No one sharpens God's thinking. God knows everything, everything actual, everything potential, everything possible, everything. When I was a kid, I was maybe eight or 10 years old and I was standing in line at McDonald's about to order ice cream. And I had a profound theological realization. Yes, that's the kind of kid that I was. I was not converted to faith in Christ until I was 20, but I was a philosopher and a theological nerd from the cradle, as my parents will attest. So here I was standing in McDonald's, and I came to realize in the process of placing my order that God knew the flavor 
of the ice cream that I was going to order before I even ordered it. Here's how it happened. I did a little experiment. I told myself that I was going to act like I was going to order chocolate. And I was going to consciously think that I was going to order chocolate. But somewhere deep down, I had decided that I was going to order vanilla at the last minute in an attempt to trick God. But as the cashier handed me my vanilla ice cream, I had this realization based on the fact of God's omniscience that God even knew about my trick, my plan, my deception, and that his knowledge penetrated to the very bottom of who I am as his knowledge penetrates down to the very bottom of everything. Indeed, God knows everything. Everything actual, everything potential, everything possible, everything. Who has measured or directed the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Israel, behold your God. In view of these things, then, in verses 15 to 17, Isaiah makes the absurdity of comparing the nations with Israel's God explicit. He's been setting the scene, and now he comes to his point. Behold, in view of what has been said, the nations are, in comparison to God, like a drop in a bucket. He returns to this in verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. This is what Isaiah has been driving at. In comparison to the nations, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, God is so far superior that they really can't be compared. In between verse 15 and verse 17 is a statement. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Now Lebanon was known to have the finest cedar in the known world. Their wood was of such renowned quality, in fact, that Solomon used Lebanese cedar to construct his temple. So this verse is saying that even if the nations laid the finest wood available under their animal sacrifices and slaughtered every one of their beasts, it would be as nothing, less than nothing, and emptiness in God's eyes. 
God is not profited by the nations, not religiously or otherwise. God is not contingent upon the nations, nor dependent upon them in any sense, nor is God impressed with them in any sense, religiously or otherwise. God exists in eternal aseity, which means that he is dependent upon no one and nothing. The nations need him, though he has no need whatsoever of the nations. Even a man dying of thirst finds a single drop in a bucket utterly useless. This conveys something of God's utter superiority over the nations. Such utter superiority that it is truly absurd to compare the nations with God. Israel, behold your God, omnipotent, all-powerful, infinite, unmeasurable, unfathomable, unattainable, omniscient, all-knowing, assay, not contingent, dependent upon no one, and nothing. Israel, behold your God. The nations, Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, are as nothing in comparison to God. Less than nothing and emptiness. It is absurd then to compare the nations with Israel's God. Let's consider now the absurdity of comparing the nation's gods with Israel's God. After showing that the nations cannot be compared with Israel's God, the question is asked in verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? This is like a rhetorical question. It's not seriously suggesting that an idol may truly be compared to God. Rather, it's introducing a hypothetical answer that some people might give in order to demonstrate the absurdity of such a thought. Look at what follows. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. Imagine the conversation between two pagans. Let's get some nice metal and make a statue. Surely that will be worth comparing to the one who holds all the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. Well, only if we overlay it with gold. Only then may it be compared with the one who marked off the heavens with the span of his hand. Good point. And let's not forget silver chains to secure it to the wall so that it doesn't tip over. You see just how absurd it is to compare a statue, however lavish, to the creator of all things. And then Isaiah goes on to say that some can't afford a metal god, so they go find some quality wood and fashion a god from that. 
In a sense, that's even more absurd because it's even less impressive than a metal statue. But does the material really make a difference? Whether a wooden god or a metal god, whether a cedar god or a mahogany god or a gold god or a silver god or a titanium god or whatever else, none can compare to the God of Israel. Therefore, in the final analysis, all comparisons of statues of any material to God the Creator are equally absurd. These are created things, and only God is the Creator. We must not suppose that God can be compared to a piece of wood or precious metal, nor that He can be compared even to the demons that sometimes attach themselves to likenesses of wood or metal, granting them some measure of power and efficacy. Because even the demons are but fallen angels, which are themselves created beings. As creator, God is superior then even to the demons that lie behind some of the statues of the pagans. As creator, God is far superior to anything or anyone created. Israel, behold your God. Verses 21 to 26 now simply present a summary of what has been said so far. God is not comparable to the nations, nor is God comparable to the gods of the nations. God is incomparable, period. Look at verse 22. It is the God of Israel who sits above the circle of the earth, the God of Israel to whom the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. It is the God of Israel who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes of the earth to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Remember, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, all flesh is grass. Verse 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then? Again, the Lord asks through the prophet Isaiah in verse 25, to whom then will you compare me? God is not like a gigantic man with huge hands and huge measuring cups. Those are just figures of speech. God is not like a super general superior to Assyria's military commander, the Rabshakeh. God is not like a super king superior to Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar. God is not like a super statue superior to the wooden and metal gods of the nations, simply bigger and composed of finer material. God is in a different category from all of those things altogether. God is as superior to all of the above as the creator is to his creation. There is truly 
no perfect analogy for God. There is truly no comparison. Last year sometime I was reading some head-tying theological material about the nature and essence of God. Many of you know I like analogies. They're great for understanding things and they're great for explaining. And so I was searching for an analogy for God as I was reading about things like divine simplicity and impassibility and aseity and so forth. I was searching for an analogy. Well, what is this like? And at one point I realized the futility of it. And I set my book face down on my lap. And I said to myself, God is not exactly like anything else. He simply is who he is. And isn't that exactly what God said when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush? I am who I am. So while we might use figures of speech, including comparison, as Isaiah does here, to talk about God, we are never making an exact comparison between created things and God. We can't. It is impossible. Therefore, as the commentator E.J. Young says, in our thinking about God, the infinite distance between God and the creature must ever be kept in mind. To break down this distinction is to fall into the sin of idolatry. The creator has no exact analogy in creation. The creator is not exactly like any creature. The creator is not literally like a man but with a bigger span between his thumb and his baby finger. Or like a man, but with bigger measuring cups. He is not comparable to the nations or their gods. As some have said, God exists alone in a category of one. This is one aspect of the word holy. We often think of it in terms of sin or sinlessness. But another aspect is unique, set apart, not like other things. Truly God is, as verse 25 calls him, the Holy One. And he alone is the Holy One. Israel, behold your God. Let's consider now the comfort that this speaks to us, as comfort is the main theme of Isaiah chapter 40. And so Isaiah must be speaking comfort to us, even in verses 12 to 26, as he speaks about the infinity and the immensity and the omnipotence and the omniscience and the aseity of God. Isaiah must be speaking comfort to us. Let's consider now the comfort that these things speak to us. And let me begin by reading you a story from way back in 2 Kings 6, verses 8 to 17. Once, when the king of Assyria, pardon me, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, 
he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that's Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So by way of explanation, before we continue reading, the king of Aram, or Syria, kept having his ambushes against the Israelites spoiled because someone was alerting the king of Israel to his activities and his plans. At first, the king of Syria suspected it was one of his own men, betraying him by relaying his plans to the king of Israel. Turns out, however, that it was Elisha, the prophet of the God of Israel to whom these things had been revealed by God, and who in turn went and told the king of Israel about the king of Syria's ambushes. So let's continue reading. So the king of Aram said, Go and see where Elisha is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant of Elisha said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Christian, in your life, do you ever feel like the servant of Elisha did? Alas, what shall we do? Or alas, what am I going to do? Do you ever feel that kind of fear that you are going to be overrun by the nations, so to speak? That the gods of the nations will have the victory that they desire over you. As Elisha prayed for his servant, so I pray for you. O oh Lord, open their eyes that they may see. There are horses and chariots of fire all around you, so to speak. The God of Israel, described here in Isaiah chapter 40, has come to you, Christian, in Christ Jesus. 
This God who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand is your divine shepherd, and he carries you in his arms. He leads you along. You may truly be surrounded by enemies, but if you only had eyes to see that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, you would not fear a thing. Meditate, therefore, Christian, on Isaiah 40 and other passages which speak to the incomparable greatness of God and consider that it is he who by his Holy Spirit has come to indwell you as a consequence of Christ's work. And let that comfort you. Unbeliever, when the fickle whims of the gods of the nations turn against you, when circumstances frown upon you, when the nations themselves ally together against you, and you find yourself surrounded by what Shakespeare called the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Unbeliever, where can you turn? Are there horses and chariots of fire visible only to the eyes of faith surrounding you, so to speak? No. More to the point, is the God who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand on your side? No. Is the incomparable one, the near one, to you? No. You are still unbeliever among the idolaters, clinging to the worship of created things rather than the creator. Perhaps not statues of wood and stone, perhaps paper instead stacking those bills, perhaps flesh and bone pursuing sexual gratification, perhaps paint or pen devoting yourselves to artistic beauty, perhaps pixels and circuits fixated on the latest technology, Whatever it may be, whatever you are living for, whatever you are enjoying above all else, whatever it is that you are hoping in, if it's not the God of Israel, described here in Isaiah 40, come into this world in the person of Christ Jesus. Whatever it might be that you're living for, enjoying above all else and hoping in, it's not the God of Israel. It's a created thing and not the creator. This is one way of describing the demarcation between unbelief and saving faith in the almighty God. Saving faith looks to, adores, worships, and trusts in the creator. Unbelief looks to, adores, worships, and trusts in a created thing.
or a series of created things. But the Almighty God has come, as prophesied by the prophet Isaiah in the person of Christ Jesus, to save his people and shepherd us home. Jesus is not a shadow of God or a picture of God or a figurative representation of God or an anthropomorphic image of God. But as the author of Hebrews says, he is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus himself testified, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. Therefore, unbeliever, if you would receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you would be receiving the God of Isaiah 40. This God holds out his mighty arm of salvation to you, having lived a sinless life sufficient to satisfy the demands of his law on your behalf having died a substitutionary death sufficient to turn his own holy wrath from you, having rose from the dead, showing that even the power of death is as nothing, less than nothing, before him. This God holds out his mighty arm of salvation to you. He holds out his nail-pierced hands of salvation to you, even you, unbelievers. Tonight, take hold of Christ Jesus by faith. And in taking hold of him, you are taking hold of the God of Isaiah 40, Israel's uncomparable God. You may have tuned into this broadcast tonight without this God of Isaiah 40 on your side. But before we even close this evening, you may have dealings with Christ Jesus. You may turn from your worship, your adoration of, your trust in created things. You may shift all of that over to the Creator who has come in the person of Christ Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. You may trust in Jesus' perfect life and his substitutionary death and be reconciled to God. Before we even close tonight, you may be able to know that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, having drawn near to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Unbeliever, take hold of God by the gospel that he extends to you tonight. And then may we all together, seasoned saints, and brand new believers. May we all together fight fear with the comfort that the incomparable God of Israel is on our side. The God of Israel is ours by faith.
There are horses and chariots of fire, so to speak, all around us. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. He who holds the waters in the hollow of his hand carries us like lambs in his bosom. Israel, church, behold your God. Let's sing in response, behold our God.